The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson, and I guess you could call this a new series of Holy Smoke, which is my sort of get-out clause when I haven't done an episode for a bit. But I've had COVID for the first time ever. It's horrible. And I've just relapsed, I think, as a result of the stress of trying to understand the subject of this week's podcast which is the world's nastiest liturgical dispute, the most vicious liturgy wars in living memory, and they involve not Arthur Roach's thuggish attempt to suppress the Latin Mass, but the Syro-Malabar Church. That's a community of some four million Indian Christians in full communion with the Holy See, whose rite is extremely ancient, it is Syriac, it is connected historically to Nestorianism, and I suppose you could say that, in some ways, it's as far removed from the mainstream Roman Rite Mass as you can imagine. I mean, the Mass is called the Holy Corbana, the Eucharistic prayer is known as the Anaphora. The services themselves have been influenced down the centuries by Hinduism, So it's exotic, unfamiliar and rather beautiful way of worshipping and thriving, I think. But there is almost literally blood on the streets in India. And the Casus Belli, originally anyway, was the Vatican's attempts to regularise the worship of the Syro-Malabar Church. My guest today is the senior correspondent of The Pillar, Luke Coppen the genius and only begetter of the much-missed Weekly Catholic Herald and a friend of mine for many, many years, who has been covering in great detail for the pillar this bloody but little publicised outside India um, liturgical warfare. And so I really need two things, Luke. One is just explain to us what the Syro-Malabar Church is, because it's done my head in, it's brought back my COVID, I think. And secondly, explain how... A liturgical dispute got so nasty that the, uh, a cardinal has found himself accused of land scams and the Indian government is taking him to court and there's a real threat of violence. So can we just begin with, what is the Syro-Malabar Church? Well, good question. Uh, I think many many of us, particularly outsiders to the Catholic Church, would see the Catholic Church as a, as a monolith, as just one immense body. Uh, but in fact, within the immense global Catholic Church, there are 23 Eastern Catholic Churches. Uh, and these are bodies which are, are somewhat independent of uh, the wider Catholic Church, uh, but they are in full communion with the Pope, as, as you mentioned. So among these 23, there is the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, which is the, is the largest one, um, and which is um, very much in the media spotlight at the moment with the Ukraine war. And the second largest of those Eastern Catholic Churches is the Syro-Malabar Church, which is based in India. Uh, And as you said, it has around 4 million members who are located mainly in India, uh, but also in diaspora communities in the United States, Britain, Australia and elsewhere. Now, the Syro-Malabar Church traces its origins all the way back to St. Thomas the Apostle, uh, also known as Doubting Thomas. 
And according to tradition, St. Thomas made his way to India after the resurrection and founded a community uh, that became known as the St. Thomas Christians, a very uh, broad uh, group who, um, as uh, over time, they, they developed in, in different ways. Some became Catholics, Protestants, some became Oriental Orthodox Christians. One of those branches is the Syro-Malabar church. It's called Syro because uh, its liturgy is Syriac. Um, so, it, as you said, it goes all the way back to the sort of early origins uh, of Christianity through that. And Malabar, because Malabar is an old name for that southwestern coast of India. Um, so it, that, there we have the Syro-Malabar church. Uh, its members speak Malayalam, uh, and its liturgy is in Malayalam. Um, so if, if you're, you're with me that far... As I, and as I understand it, the sort of exotic, ancient, mysterious elements of the Saramalabar liturgy were really restored um, last century by Pope Pius XII, so that it became less Romanized. But that That's since right. then, there have been attempts, typical of the Vatican-controlled freaks, to Romanize it again, or at least we know that one of the things, one of the, one, one of the things they're arguing about is ad orientum, celebration of the anaphora, I think that's the word for the Eucharistic prayer. Could you just explain that? Yes. So um, so in the original liturgy that was celebrated by the Sire Malabar Church, the priest would face east, uh, ad orientum in, in Latin, so uh, away from the congregation or with his back to the congregation, however you want to put it. And that was the uh, the long tradition of the Sire Malabar Church and Sire Malabar Catholics. But um, from about the 1500s onwards, the Sire Malabar Church had a, a major encounter with the, the Latin church. Catholics from from Europe, uh, which lasted for centuries, and essentially it lost its independence. It wasn't recognised as a uh, self-governing church, uh, and it was uh, subject to Latinization for centuries. Nevertheless, it still celebrated the liturgy facing east, because that was also the Latin Catholic practice at the time. Uh, fast forward a bit, uh, going over many centuries, uh, we have uh, Vatican II, and we have the liturgical reforms which follow Vatican II, one of the most striking characteristics of which is that the priest faces the congregation. Uh, so this is also known as, I think, ad populum in, in Latin, so ad orientum and ad populum. It's the, it's, uh, the, it's the game show narcissist option at its worst, <laughs> I think. Not always, of course. Well, it, it had an influence well beyond the, the Latin church. It also reached the Sire Malabar church, uh, and some priests in the Sire Malabar church took, took up this option of the, the priest facing the people during the liturgy, uh, and it became particularly embedded in one of the most important dioceses of the Sire Malabar church, the, the Archdiocese of Nakulam, Angamali. So, uh, so alongside that, you also had a fair bit of diversity in the way that the, the liturgy was celebrated among Sire Malabar Catholics. So not just the priest facing in different directions, but just variations in the liturgy as well. And um, over the past hundred years or so, there's been this rediscovery of the, the the value of Eastern Catholic churches and of their own traditions, which has been actually been encouraged by the Vatican and by Vatican II indeed as well. Um, so as that's this has released a process of rediscovering the ancient tradition uh, at the same time as there's been all these liturgical changes you know, around the world and instability. Uh, so so in in this quite complex within these quite complex dynamics, what you have had in the Sire Malabar Church is a movement to say, well, why don't we just have one liturgy? You know, we are one church after all, so uh, it would be helpful not to have all these variations which are kind of confusing and, you know, let's express our faith together in one way. Um, so there arose this idea of having a uniform liturgy. Uh, the uniform liturgy is a 
designed to be a compromise between the ancient version in which the priests face east and the newer version in which priests face the people throughout the liturgy. Um, so it's sometimes known as the 50-50 formula. So there's a balance between the priest facing the congregation and the priest facing east. So you might think this formula would please everyone, <laughs> uh, both advocates of liturgy facing the east and advocates of liturgy facing the people. But in fact, it doesn't seem to have pleased anyone at all. Well, I'm not surprised, actually, because I think it sounds like a complete mess to me, such as there have been various experiments of the, the priest facing both ways in the, in the, in the Latin Rite Mass. And I, it's not that I'm a great believer in uniformity, but one thing I can't help noticing is the Vatican's insistence on monkeying around with ancient liturgies. It can't leave well alone. And for all its talk of diversity, when it's actually confronted with diversity of liturgical practice, it can't bear it. And it seems to be that just as we've seen brutal, thuggish and completely indefensible assault on the, 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 the beautiful, extraordinary form brought back by Benedict XVI. In India, they just can't bear the idea that everything isn't done in exactly the same way. Yeah, although I, I would see this as quite a recent development, because um, if you think about India more widely, it is incredibly diverse as a, as a culture, linguistically, ethnically, and so on. So they are incredibly used to living with diversity in a way that, you know, perhaps for, for much longer than many of us in the in the West have done. But I think within the Catholic Church, yes, I think in recent years particularly, there's been this push towards uniformity uh, in liturgy, which I personally feel goes against the the history of the of the church, which has been pretty diverse liturgically. Of course um, it does. Of course it does. Absolutely. The word Catholic yeah. implies that there is room for more than one way of celebrating the divine liturgy or the mass or whatever you want to call it. But it's just that you know, for all the dreadful jargon about celebrating diversity that comes out of, I don't know, Synod for Bishops or Arthur Roach or, you know, the Vatican waffle machine, actual celebration of diversity is not really encouraged. Yes, and I, I think perhaps that's also because the liturgy is especially sensitive. Uh, for, I mean, for Catholics, it, it's one thing guaranteed to get to raise Catholics' hackles is to, is to talk about the liturgy or to start debating it. It's a subject of some of the fiercest debates, I think, because despite secularization around the world the sacred is just so important to such great numbers of people we're talking about catholics now so of course it's you know the most important thing for Syrian malabar catholics would be the the liturgy and the way that it's celebrated um so i understand that it might seem strange for total outsiders to, to why people are arguing about which way the priest should face you know uh, i can understand the point of view but you have to have to realize just just what's on the line for the individual believer here is you know, the, the sacred. It's, their, it's their, their way of communing with God. I agree. I agree completely. And the example that comes to mind are the old believers in Russia, who some of them were prepared to go to their deaths in the what, 17th century, I think, over how you made the sign of the cross, how exactly the two fingers and thumb were extended in what shape as he made the sign of the cross, whether he did it in the Byzantine way, which Moscow tried to force on the old believers, or in the traditional Russian way, because the shape, the configuration of the fingers, actually represented the relationship between the, the different members of the Holy Trinity, and they felt that by changing the sign of the cross, this is in the Russian Orthodox Church, you're actually playing dangerous games with Trinitarian theology. So I can understand why the same sort of passions, perhaps not as violent, but nonetheless pretty powerful, are being aroused in India at the moment. It's really turned nasty, hasn't it? There has been actual violence, um, in contrast to the liturgical disputes in, in, the, in the Latin church. There has been 
there have been physical altercations, uh, several of them in, in, the, in the past couple of years, uh, between supporters of the uniform liturgy uh, and supporters of priests facing the people. Uh, and these have, these have taken place in a particular, in a particular area of southern India uh, within the diocese of Anakulam Angamali, uh, which is the real the real sort of crisis point in this whole liturgical debate. Uh, it's the it's the most important diocese within the Syro Malabar Catholic Church, and it's also the seat of the major archbishop or head of the of the entire Syro Malabar Catholic Church worldwide. So um, the equivalent of say the diocese of Westminster in the Catholic Church in England and Wales, uh, and the the clashes have taken different forms. Um, there's been punch ups on the street uh, between the supporters uh, with some of them attacking each other with what I think was kind of microphone stands which are then broken up by police. Um, there have been hunger strikes um, which uh, were only sort of called off. <laughs> uh, well, they lasted for, for days and days and really put the people in quite a lot of danger of death. Um, there have also been uh, the burning of effigies of cardinals, a Vatican cardinal and the local head of the Sora Malabar Church had been burned in effigy by the supporters of mass facing the people. So at least nobody's done that. Nobody's, nobody, to the best of my knowledge, has burned Arthur Roach in effigy. I suppose it's difficult to find an effigy big enough. I think you'd run out of bed sheets. but um, good Lord. And the Cardinal, Mar George Allencherry, um, he's in real trouble, isn't he? He is. And I think this is an important part of the liturgical dispute, is that Prior to the explosion of this this violent protest, uh, there was a huge controversy over the sale of some pieces of land uh, in, within the archdiocese, uh, which is run, as you say, by Cardinal Allencherry. Uh, and priests began to rebe- rebel against this and rise up and demand some accountability because they, f- they believed that these land sales lost the, the archdiocese about $10 million. And this has became known as the Anaclum Priests' Revolt. Uh, and what you saw there was a real division in the archdiocese between the majority of priests and the cardinal, or the head of the diocese. So you have this collapse of the cardinal's authority before the liturgical dispute really heats up. So I think that was an essential preparation for the liturgical dispute just becoming so nasty uh, that you had this, this crisis of authority that preceded it. And then you had the liturgical crisis when uh, there were attempts to enforce the uniform liturgy on supporters of the of the literally facing the people where does francis stand on this so the syro malabar bishops turned to francis at the very beginning to get his endorsement of the push to impose the uniform liturgy throughout the syro malabar catholic church and he did that in a in a letter but it it wasn't persuasive for, for everyone uh in within the syro malabar church because the syro malabar church is uh, has a degree of independence, as I mentioned earlier. Um, so it has a sort of autonomy, and it's really governed by a synod, the Synod of Bishops of the Syro Malabar Church. That's the supreme authority. So a lot of Syro Malabar Catholics think the Vatican shouldn't really be involved in it, and it should be a matter properly addressed by the Synod of Bishops. Which is um, interesting, Luke, because that's a proper Synod of Bishops, as opposed to a bogus group of left-wing activists, including you know lots of lots of women and LGBT campaigners who are masquerading as a synod of bishops in Rome this autumn. Well, it is a synod of bishops that just consists of bishops, and the lay people are, aren't members of it. It also has authority over the liturgy as well, so its powers are um, in the Catholic, in the Latin 
the, the synod you're talking about is just an advisory body, but this one has actual powers to determine the liturgy. So Roach um, can't, Arthur Roach can't mess around with it, and, and I mean, even though he's head of divine worship, that doesn't extend to the Oriental churches. So this doesn't, doesn't technically come under uh, Cardinal Roach's jurisdiction because uh, it's an Eastern Catholic church, therefore it's the dicastery for Eastern churches and the Pope that are responsible for, for overseeing uh, the, the Sari Malabar Catholic Church ultimately um, but they are I mean generally the Vatican is reluctant to intervene uh, in situations like this uh, but the the Sari Malabar Church did turn to Pope Francis uh, at the very beginning to try and get the papal endorsement which they, they got uh, for the change but as, as I mentioned it didn't go down well with everyone because some people felt that there should be a sort of Indian solution to this there should be a Sari Malabar a solution to this problem rather than going to Rome uh, all the time. Then there was an attempt to impose uniform liturgy on all of the Syro-Malabar dioceses, all 35 of them. Now 34 went with the change, but one didn't. And you can guess which one that is. It's the Archdiocese of Vernaculum Angamali. At that point, the Syro-Malabar bishops went to the, the Pope again, and the Pope wrote a letter uh, just to the priests and people of the Archdiocese, urging them to uh, set aside their preference for liturgy facing the people and to embrace the uniform liturgy uh, but again it didn't have the effect that that Malabar bishops desired and in fact if anything tensions just grew beyond that point um, and I think reached a culmination just just before Christmas in which there was a confrontation between supporters and opponents of the uniform liturgy inside St Mary's Cathedral Basilica the cathedral of the Archdiocese of Anaconum Angamali uh, in which protesters pushed over an altar uh, while the liturgy facing the people was being celebrated, sending the sacred vessels crashing to the ground and the missiles were flying everywhere. And I think they were striking the priests as they were celebrating the liturgy. Uh, it was a terrible spectacle, uh, all caught on, on camera. Uh, and the police were on standby and intervened, cornered the protesters, uh, penned them in. Uh, and it's absolute pandemonium in the cathedral basilica, which was then shut down and it hasn't reopened since. So more than six months later, the main cathedral of the Archdiocese of Anaconamangamali is closed, uh, and all the attempts so far to reopen it have failed. And what's happened to Cardinal Allentry? Cardinal Allentry is... He, he had to stay, could take a step back from the day-to-day governance of the Archdiocese because of the land scam. Uh, he, he's always protested his innocence, and, um, and he was reinstated in his role of overseeing the, the diocese, but not its day-to-day governance. So that was sort of separated out and a, a, an administrator was appointed to oversee the day-to-day governments. So he's kind of, he's in this weird situation in which he's uh, officially in charge of the archdiocese, but not in practice. So what lessons for the Western church are there to be drawn from this sordid and violent business? I mean, as you know my view that the, the, the um, tearing up of Pope Benedict XVI's wonderful liturgical reforms was really a, a, almost a crime against humanity, in my opinion, a, a major assault on religious freedom that, that, that the world has yet to address and that I think should bring this pontificate crashing down. It won't, but it ought to. Um, are there any parallels that strike you? Well, on the, on the face of it, the, the two liturgical crises are quite different um, and kind of different in an ironic way uh, because in the case of the Syro-Malabar church, the Vatican supporting uh, the introduction or imposition of a liturgy in which the priest faces east at certain points, whereas 
in the in the the Western Church controversy, uh, the Vatican is doing its best to discourage the liturgy in which the priest faces east. Uh, so you have that that ironic difference. But I think the commonality uh, is that the push for uniformity, the insistence that there's one correct way of celebrating each liturgical rite, uh, and I think for me that that goes against uh, Catholic history uh, in in many instances in which there's been a a legitimate variety of ways of celebrating the liturgy um, and I think it does show in practice as well that it does show the imp- impracticality of that I think when people are very very used to a particular way of celebrating the liturgy uh, which has been approved uh, and isn't heretical in any way I, th- I think there's a case for, for, for leaving it be at least for a generation or so if the uniformity isn't coming about naturally. And there's your analogy I think with the with the extraordinary form and the ordinary form I think so. I, I think it creates bitterness, um, and I don't think uh, bitterness is really conducive to, to faith. It's certainly not conducive to evangelization. And, and I, I think a really important point is that the Syro Malabar community is is really dynamic uh, compared to other branches of the Catholic Church. Um, you see Syro Malabar clergy all over the world, um, sort of um, preaching the gospel, embracing new media, uh, leading healing masses at which there are. Sort of thousands and thousands of people i mean they're, they're they've got so much going on but this liturgical dispute is bringing everybody in the church down it's tarnishing the image of the church uh, i mean when you see the clashes like the clashes in the cathedral basilica i mean they're just so dispiriting and un- unnecessary really if you think that you could just uh, hit pause on the process of of uniformity of uh, and just you know, let it be for at least a couple of years, say, just to let the passions die down a bit. Well, I mean, I suspect that under Benedict XVI, the pause button would have been hit, but under this rogue pontificate, um, it never is. But there's a final thought, which is you talk about the dynamism of the Saramalabar Church. How interesting that one of the most dynamic, one of the few dynamic bits of the Catholic Church, alongside various old right communities, is one which follows the most ancient form of worship, one which tries least hard to mimic the sort of obsessions and cultural styles of the 20th, 21st century, that ancient liturgies and dynamic growth in modern times seem to go together. Yeah, that's true. Um, though I'd say that, I mean, if you go to Sari Malabar liturgy in, the, in this country, you would see things like uh, like electronic keyboards and so on, uh, sort of assisting the liturgy. So it's not, it is a kind of blend, I think, of ancient and modern um, at, at the same time. But yeah, it's, it's, it's true that its roots are extremely deep. Uh, and I think its spirituality is really deep as well. And, you know, liturgy nourishes spirituality. So I think I think there is that to it as well. I'm sorry you told me about the electronic keyboards. That rather spoils my, my, my glowing picture of the ceremony of our worship. But nonetheless, it seems to me uh, yet another example of, of the Vatican completely unable to manage its own extraordinary heritage. I'm sorry to hear about it, but not surprised. Luke Copper, senior correspondent of The Pillar. How fantastic to have you on the show for the first time and come back very soon. Yeah, will do.